Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello there, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. Hello, 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 hello. Good to speak to you again. Got a fantastic response for that Dave Trot episode. So uh, I'm glad people enjoyed that. If you've not checked that out, Dave, Dave Trot is sort of a legend of advertising creativity. Did uh, very big numbers of listening to that one. So, thank you for listening. This is a podcast about making work better. I'm Bruce Daisley. You can always link in to me or you can connect with me via the website, which is eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe. And you can do that on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is really a massive big deal. He's a legend of business writing, really. So, if you've in any way studied business, whether that's a business studies course or an MBA or anything to do with that, you'll be very familiar with the work of Jim Collins. Jim Collins, with a couple of iconic books, Good to Great and Built to Last, has sort of been a very data-led researcher trying to understand how companies really prevail and do well compared to their peer group companies. And uh, we're going to go through his methodology. He's going to talk through that. But just an incredibly big and well-respected name in the world of business writing. So I was thrilled to talk to him. Some of the things that Jim's going to mention today. So Jim talks through something called Level 5 Leaders, and he'll go on and explain. He, he never set about believing that there was a leadership answer to great working cultures and, and great working environments, but he just stumbled upon uh, this concept of Level 5 Leaders, and he partly describes it and he partly sort of leads you to, to do the research. But level five leaders are, um, I guess you would sort of describe them as, I guess, an, an egoless leader. Someone who's very focused on results, very fixated on identifying what the the breakthrough metrics are, what the, the breakthrough things that a business needs to focus on. But it's never at the expense of believing their own hype and believing that they're responsible for it. One of the things he uses to illustrate level five leaders is he talks about um, a metaphor of, of the window and the mirror. And level five leaders look through the the window at their team and, and say that their team are responsible for their success. And they look in the mirror when it comes to blame. And that's one of the things he, he talks about for level five leaders. So he's going he's to mention level five leaders. 
He also mentioned a concept of the flywheel. And I guess that's like a virtuous circle that when a business is doing really well, it sort of becomes self-perpetuating. So he talks about Amazon. He's just written a brand new book, and that was the reason why he was chatting to me, a brand new book called Turning the Flywheel, which is very much about how any firm can find their virtuous circle and and really how you can find that your success becomes self-perpetuating, gets you onto a cycle where your product's getting better, customers are enjoying it more, that allows you to invest more in making your product better and so on and so on. So I just thought I'd give you a a brief explainer on those two things because you will hear us talk about it. Jim Collins is a legend of business studies. He started his teaching at Stanford University, at Stanford Graduate School of Business, and now he acts as a consultant for companies all around the world, which is why he sort of evolved these concepts. Fascinating individual. I was thrilled to get the opportunity to talk to him. Here's my discussion with Jim. Well, wow, what an honour to, to be chatting to you today, Jim. So, uh, Jim Collins, I, I think probably best thing to start is to say, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, we were uh, we were just chatting before we jumped on about probably the, the signature way to grasp me is I'm really motivated by curiosity first and foremost. And my life has been basically a series of adventures driven by questions. And uh, my, uh, the, you know, I grew up in Boulder, Colorado and uh, but went away to, to college and, and basically got really curious about a range of subjects. And then when I was about 30 years old, I was teaching a course on entrepreneurship and small business at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And, uh, and I remember looking at the original syllabus of the course I was supposed to teach. And the syllabus said this will be about the mechanics of the small business entrepreneur or the new new business, uh, new venture founder. And I, and I crossed out the opening line of the sentence, uh, opening sentence of the syllabus, and replaced it. And to this day, I still can't tell you why it happened, but I replaced it with this is going to be a course on how to turn a new venture or a small business into an enduring great company. And I looked at that and I thought, wow, I really don't know anything about that. So that's what really launched an adventure of 30 years of curiosity into the question, what really does uh, make a great company, a great organization, a great enterprise tick? And what makes them really different from others? And so other than my avocations like rock climbing and the vast range, ranges of curiosity I have in other subjects, that has really been the guiding question for the first 30 years of work. I've now got the next 30 to go. Now, the, the thing that really comes out through all of the work is uh, I thought we'd start by just talking about your process because it seems yep. involved and sort of immersive and, and collaborative. Do you want to talk through mm. what your process is? Well, there is very much a method and a process behind it. And so after I had that question of, wow, how would you really figure out what makes an, an enduring great company different from others? I didn't really know how to get at it. And I, I teamed up with Jerry Porras, who was a massively tenured dean. He was 60, I was 30. Uh, and he had the tremendous humility to say, let's partner as peers, which if you think about it is amazing. And we partnered as peers and we came up with this method where the insight is that the birth of any industry, you get a whole 
whole bunch of natural experiments. You get pairs of companies or groups of companies that are essentially the same at the start of the industry. So at the birth of the semiconductor industry or the birth of the aircraft industry or the birth of the pharmaceutical industry or the birth of the biotech industry, birth of software, personal computers, right? you're going to get an explosion of new entrants, but there's only going to be one or two that emerge as the really great companies. And if you could go back and find at that sort of primordial ooze, if you will, pairs that were virtually identical at the start, but then they diverged and one became great and the other didn't. And over the course of their history, you could systematically at each step of the way say, what was different in the great one versus the not great one? How did they think? How did they build their culture? How did they lead? How did they make decisions? What did they not do? How did they adapt to disruptive environments? different one versus the other. And Jerry's insight was by using that rigorous comparative method, we would get the very best insights. And so since then, that led to the built to last study. And then from there asking, can an average company make the leap to a great company? That was the good to great study where you're comparing good to great cases to those that didn't make the leap. How the mighty fall study where you look at great companies, one fell, one kept rising. And great by choice, which looks at the question of, well, why do some do really well when they hit a massively chaotic environment and the other, which is virtually identical entering into it, doesn't do as well. That led to 6,000 years of combined corporate history in our research database, which then led to a series of insights, which I kind of think of as the principles of what make great companies tick. And before we dive in, so so the question that deserves being answered in the first instance is, mm-hmm. is there not a danger of survivor's bias by the very methodology in the sense that, you know, by you, you, you could conceivably be fooled by randomness that one company did one thing, it led to spectacular results, and then we build a narrative around it. What were the ways that you avoided that? Well, that's the whole point of having a controlled analysis, right? So if you, it's a huge amount of work to basically do these historical comparative analyses or five, six, seven year studies. And, And there's a couple of ways that you get around this. The first is you have the control. I would love to do randomized, placebo controlled, double blind trials in management, but you can't. So what could you do? Well, you can go back and say there were essentially experiments, right? They were historical, but they were still sort of experiments. A bunch of companies looked the same, and then one emerged and the other didn't. And then you can ask, it's not, what do the great companies share in common? Because then you would find, well, they all have buildings, and you wouldn't want to conclude that they all had buildings as the way to be great because the comparisons also had buildings. But if you see systematically, rigorously in the data, that there are differences that show up over time, and here's the other key part, why historical is so important. What you have to look at is not, say, if you're studying Intel over its history, you don't look at it today and look backward. You go get the actual documents and activities that allow you to look at their decisions at the time before you know the outcome. And then you look, what were they thinking about? Why were they thinking about it that way? What bets did they make? What were their criteria? 
And how did the comparison deal with the same situation? And then you add up enough slices, enough decisions, where you can start to get lots and lots of data points of different types of events, and then you can do analyses on those data points. That never establishes pure causation, because you can't do that in the social sectors. No one can establish pure causation. But you can establish very, very strong correlation. So so let's sort of delve into the the conclusions that you really found. And and I guess, you know, to, to sort of lead the witness to some extent, the, this podcast has got a fascination with workplace culture. Um, and, and I guess I would be fascinated to hear your take on, firstly, what you felt were the components of, of the, the great companies or what, what marked out those that stood apart from their peer group. So let's zoom way out for a moment and kind of put a broad frame on it and then hit a couple of pieces within them. So if you take all the research, all 6,000 years of combined corporate data and that rigorous method, and then you kind of stand back and say, what does it add up to? Think of a process that unfolds in stages. Stage one is about disciplined people. Stage two is about disciplined thought. Stage three is about disciplined action. Stage four is about building it to last. And then there's the 10x multiplier, which we might or might not have time to get to, which sort of amplifies all the others. And here's the first thing I want to underscore right out of the gate. And you talk about workplace cultures, you talk about performance. Notice what comes first, people. That's right at the beginning. It's disciplined people. And within that, there are two really key things that the more I look at any of our work and in any human system I come back to. The first is not leadership, but the type of leadership, what we call the level five leaders. And the second is the incredible rigor to have the right people on the bus in the key seats. And in particular, to have the right people in your key unit leader seats. Because most people don't live in a company. They live in the micro environment of the people right around them. And so the real key is you need to have the right people in those unit leader seats because they create the environment for everybody else. So when you stand back and say, well, gosh, you know, what about vision and what about purpose and what about direction and what about strategy and what about momentum and and what about execution? All those things come, but they all come after the question of people. Great vision without great people is irrelevant. And even when we get to the flywheel, which – we'll be very passionately talking about here in a few minutes, a great flywheel without great people does not turn. So it begins first, foremost, always with the right people, far before you figure out what to do. It's far more important who you do it with. And and describe that for me a little, because, you know, we, we often hear it's, it's almost trite that people say uh, people are their best asset. And, you know, you'd probably struggle to find any organization that didn't in its annual report say that our people are our finest asset. So what really is the differentiator? Can you hire for these these superior quality people? What, what are you looking for? Well, let's look at, at, at two bases on this. One is the level five leaders and then how you might think about people in general so first yeah. of all and i just i just want to jump in there because because um you, you said emphatically actually actually when you set out you really didn't want this to be a leadership piece exactly. right? you, you almost did, you didn't want it to have a leadership answer yeah so 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 uh let's start there and then go to the to the question of people and just to kind of uh, preview that a little bit what we learned in our research is that that statement people are our most important asset is not quite right the right people are. 
And what our companies were, and the level five leaders were really good at is being really clear to get what for the kind of culture they were trying to build and the kind of company they were trying to build, they were trying to get the right people. And that if they had the right people, then the right people are the real key to making it work. So illustrate that for us. Give us an example because the right people – give us an example maybe that could help people pinpoint exactly for a situation what the right people looked like. Well, let me, let me use a personal example from, from my own team. I have a marvelous person uh, on my team uh, who, who helps with all of the activities that we have. If we have a commitment, we just had a group of 20 CEOs here visiting from around the world. And this member of my team, uh, what makes her a right person is she doesn't view it as a job. She views it as a responsibility. And that whole sense that my responsibility is when people come, I have to zoom out and think about all the possible things that could go wrong. And I have to think about all the things that have to be in place uh, ahead of time. And how do we welcome people when they walk in the door? And how do I assume responsibility for ensuring that when they are here, they can focus 100% on the learning and the teaching and the challenges? And how can I do that in such a way that when I'm doing it in this seat, I am really engaged in what I'm doing because I'm in something that actually fits me. I was almost made for this. And I have incredible passion for what we are doing. And I have a genetic capability at it, right? And so I could have all kinds of systems for trying to manage somebody into that. But no, instead, I just have found this person who is spectacularly well-suited to that particular role. But that just sounds like good luck. I mean, I I was fascinated with the story of of Nucor because I I could see it there. But surely it just feels like you've you've lucked out hiring someone remarkable there, no? Well, let's let's talk about two parts of that. So if we take Nucor from good to great, right, they, they were very clear that the kind of person that they wanted to have is someone who has kind of this intense... Uh, work ethic. Uh, they just really love to work and work on intense teams that pride themselves on delivering exceptionally high levels of productivity. And so they created a culture there where if you were somebody who was kind of a freeloader, you wanted everybody else to do the work for you, it wouldn't require the company saying you should go. Their teammates would essentially say, you should go. And if you were the kind of person who wanted to work in an environment where status didn't matter very much, but only performance did, you would tend to flourish and your teammates would embrace you. But if you were the kind of person that was like, well, what am I going to get? And how am I going to stand out? And am I going to have the special perks? And and oh, it really doesn't matter how much I produce, what really matter, relative, you know, in the team, what really matters is what I get. Well, that kind of person is kind of surrounded by the antibodies and ejected like a virus, right? They might be a perfectly fine person, but they wouldn't thrive there. And I think that notion of saying a great culture is great for certain people, and there are people who might thrive in one culture, but not in another culture. And first, who is to say there's a certain ethos of the type of people who will really thrive here? One comment on luck. I mentioned earlier this notion of a 10x multiplier. And luck is something we systematically studied in one of our research studies with my colleague Morton Hansen. And there's very interesting findings on that. But it turns out that one of the most important kinds of luck you can get is who luck. And if you wear that first who lens in everything you do, 
Well, then if you get great hula, yeah. grab it. I guess you you start with getting the right people on the bus. And what does that look like? Does that involve getting some people off the bus? Or or you said, I think you mentioned you want your best people in the best seats on the bus as well, right? Not not the sort of the biggest problems. Yeah, so it, it it's it's what we found in our research is that those who really built these great environments for what they were trying to do uh, would first get the right people, and they would get the right people in the key seats. And if they had somebody that didn't fit on the bus, then the, those people would tend to go. Sometimes it was more gradual. Sometimes it was more abrupt. But they had a phrase they lived with. They were rigorous, not ruthless. So they were very, very rigorous. But you're still talking about human beings. So just because you have to make a rigorous decision that someone doesn't belong on the bus or on your minibus or in a key seat doesn't mean you have to handle it in a ruthless way in making the change. So that's a really key distinction. Be rigorous, not ruthless. When you when you look across at organizations, maybe sort of through a modern prism, uh, a, a modern lens, so Netflix appear to have uh, a, a sustained, successful culture. They've gone through sort of three, four different iterations of their business model, and they definitely are ruthless. Does, does that mean that they're just a different model, or is there any things that we can learn as a comparison? Well, I think that the uh, – I guess let me, let me pop back to, again, different, different kinds of cultures, different sorts of people are going to thrive within different kinds of cultures. Uh, I'd like to put a, a little bit of emphasis on the types of leaders because we've started talking about that, that really – seem to create the environments that bring the most out of people. And when we were do, starting to do the research on good to great, I did say, I don't want to have a leadership answer in this book. And, and the reason I didn't is I'm very skeptical of leadership answers. It's kind of like we look at it and say, well, if they had a great leader, then then the company would do well. And then if the company didn't do well, well, then we must not have had a great leader. And we just go around in a circle. And so I said to the research team, let's let's not have a leadership answer. Let's find deeper answers than that. But the team came back and they really pushed on me one day. And they said, Jim, you're ignoring the incredible role that the leaders played when the companies went from good to great. And I came back to them and I said, well, but what about the comparison companies? Right, the comparison companies also had leaders and sometimes quite magnetic and larger than life and charismatic leaders. And they, so if you have them in both the good to great companies and the comparison companies, you have leadership. Well, then leadership doesn't matter because it disappears. They cross each other out. And the team came back. And, and remember, this was a great moment because I walked into the research team meeting and they had all kind of joined hands and said, today is the day we're going to tell you that you're wrong. And we really argued about this. And finally, they said, what you're missing, Jim, is it's not leadership. It's something about the type of leader. And that became very interesting. And as we began to explore it, what we found is that the comparison companies had what we would describe as level four leaders, and the good to great companies had level five leaders. And what was different was the five versus the four, not leadership versus not leadership. And so, and the real essence of the difference of the five versus the four wasn't their personality. So just to set that up, let me just share with you two great level five leaders and how different of personalities they are, but they're both level five. And then I'll tell you what level five is. So if you take Anne Mulcahy of Xerox and Catherine Graham of the Washington Post, 
two of the great CEOs in history. If you met Emil Cahey, who took over Xerox when it was in great difficulty and led the turnaround of Xerox in the early 2000s, earns a place amongst the great CEOs for doing that. Mulcahy is magnetic. Uh, if you walk in the room, you just feel better. There's a certain light. There's just kind of this wonderful magnetic uh, enveloping sense of Anne Mulcahy's personality. Catherine Graham, on the other hand, was much more sort of austere. She was frequently described herself as quaking in her boots and frightened and, and uh, a much more sort of reserved kind of personality. Very, very different personalities. Yet they were both great leaders, both great CEOs. So what is it that they shared in common? What they shared in common as level fives that separate them from others is first their humility, defined as that they make themselves subservient to the cause of what the company is trying to do. It's not about them, genuinely not about them. Not that they say that, it genuinely is that. Combined with an utterly relentless will to do whatever it takes, no matter how difficult, to make good on what the company is trying to do and what it stands for. And that ability to, to have the duality of the personal humility and the indomitable will, that's what separated. Now think about it. Suppose you have a level five leader, a level five unit leader. Somebody, when you come to work, you know that really – they are not in it just for themselves. In fact, they understand that the best thing you can do for your career is not take care of your career. You take care of your people. And, and, and that's real, right? That's a level five stance. And then they have the will that the really hard things that have to be done, including getting the wrong people off the bus, they have the stoic, unflinching will to do it. And when you have that combination, now ask yourself, who are the people you, would, you, you have choices in life. Where do you put your best energy, your creativity, the, the sort of personal energy sacrifice required to do something extraordinary? Would you do it to help somebody just move further in their career? No. Would you do it in a level five environment? Well, that's different. You give yourself over to it. And I think that's part of the magic sauce are those leaders who have those dualities. And we focus so much on personality. Most great level fives are not charismatic. And and I saw you talk, I loved the story about Churchill. Uh, it was just yeah. about the curses of charisma, that almost when you do have a leader that's charismatic, that leader needs to make adjustments to ensure that people aren't trying to win their favor all the time. Do you want to tell the, the Churchill statistical yeah, so, story? Yes, so, so in, in, uh, we have a chapter in Good to Great, so you kind of go from the disciplined people to the disciplined thought stage now, right? And one of the key principles in disciplined thought is confront the brutal facts. And what's really interesting about this, by the way, so notice what hasn't come first is the vision thing. Yeah, right? it's that's really leaders, fascinating, right? Right, and the people. And then... People think change begins with a vision. Actually, change begins when you confront the brutal facts. That's where it really starts. And so there's this chapter on confronting the brutal facts and, and how, how uh, our leaders were really, really good at that. And so you have uh, Churchill who knew, who knew that he had this overwhelming personality. I mean, if, you know, he's a, he's a complete genius. Uh, he, is, uh, he was right about the threat 
uh, years ahead of time, uh, and and just imagine trying to argue with Churchill, right? It just it's just very hard to envision doing that as he would as he would uh, do his Churchillian things. Well, I uh, came across this thing where he he was afraid that people would not give him the unvarnished truth, and in the Second World War, the one thing you needed was the unvarnished truth. The brutal facts. So he set up this sec- separate thing called the statistical department, whose only purpose was to basically feed him the facts, whatever the facts are, so that he could make those decisions. He was fully aware of his own distortion field around himself, so he compensated with the statistical department. And so, and so this is confronting the, the brutal reality. I just want to draw back on that bit that you mentioned there, yeah. which, which is probably sort of so com- confounding it's worth covering. The fact that, that you're, you're proposing that the great organizations start with the team, not with the vision or not with the strategy, which is just, I mean, it's so refreshing to hear, right? Because I guess what you're saying is there's got to be a, a collegiality of, of decision-making that people need to feel invested in the decision. But it's... As, as someone who's started teaching business it's, it's, case studies, it, it must be like a strange journey for you to have gone on. Oh, it's, it's for sure been a strange journey. And in fact, if I were to kind of stand back and, and now I'm 61, uh, and as I mentioned, I if I have good luck of health, which you never know, uh, I expect to have another 30 years of work ahead of me. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of midstream in the journey. But if you ask, over the first 30 years since this research began, what principle from our research, whether it, you know, the level five leaders, the first two, the brutal facts, the hedgehog concept, the flywheel, right, the bulletin cannibals, the, the different ones that we had, which one uh, has had the, the most profound influence on me as a person? It is hands down the first two principle. Uh, and then I would say second, the flywheel, which we'll chat about, but the first two principle. And, 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 the, and the reason is, it's just him I can think about it. First of all, we live in an uncertain world. So suppose you get a bunch of people on the bus because you think you know where the bus should be going. And then you wake up because actually it's a really uncertain world and where you thought you were going to take the bus turns out to be wrong. Well, what do you do now? Then change everybody on the bus. But what if instead you said, you know, I don't really know what the right direction is going to be. But I do know this, that if I get the right people with me, we'll figure it out. And and it allows you to be more adaptive. It's like going up on a big mountain. I've been a climber most of my life. Well, which is the most important decision you make? This particular route, whether you're going to bring, you know, the blue cam or the red cam, or are are you going to basically have to sort of work on the ice or the off with? All those things are important. But the hands down, the most important decision when you don't know what the cliff is going to throw at you is who's on the other end of the rope. And then there's one other thing that becomes very clear to me. In the end, we think about it, our lives are short and we're gonna be overwhelmed by the number of things that we try to do. So what does life really come down to? Well, accomplishments fade away. Comes down to the quality of the minute by minute of your life. It's like a giant integral, right, from mathematics. The integral of from birth to death of the quality of the moment summed up over the course of your life. And what really causes the accomplishments don't last very long in terms of feeling, bringing you great meaning. But what really does bring great meaning is doing really wonderful things, but with people you love doing it with. And and today when I go rock climbing, uh, I don't, I almost never pick what climb we're going to do. I pick a partner. Hey, let's go climbing in El Dorado. Let's go to Yosemite. What are we going to climb? We'll figure that out. Right? And why? Because 
one, I want a great partner, we'll probably get up a great climb. But two, what really matters is the comradeship of sharing the rope. That's the who, that's not the climb. It's such a, a remarkable contrast to, to probably the way that anyone might normally think about those things. So, so, so let's move on. So you, you talked about this, I guess, when we're talking about culture, you, you've really emphasized that, you know, you've got this cultural discipline running through cultural discipline that, perv- that pervades into who you recruit and, and what you choose to do. Do you, just, do you want to go on? You've, you've hinted a couple of times at this flywheel concept, and I guess we, we, we need to sort of move along to explain exactly what that is and, and how an organization gets to this position of success. Well, so first of all, I, I, when, when you were talking earlier about how you're really interested in the question of why some environments just have a sense of energy about them and others don't. Uh, we're going to, the, the flywheel is, is a big part of it. Uh, and I'll, I'll share that in a moment. First, the, the word discipline. Uh, I want to be really clear that discipline is not regimentation. Uh, it's certainly not bureaucracy because the purpose of bureaucracy is to actually compensate for incompetence and a lack of discipline. Uh, it's not a, a, a about some sort of severity. It's about getting self-disciplined people. And if you get self-disciplined people, then you can give them freedom in a framework. And the whole idea of discipline is if we have a culture of discipline, then we can have a culture of freedom. And that's the beauty of it, is that more, the more disciplined your environment, the more creative it will be. The more disciplined envi- your environment, the more you can give people freedom to exercise their responsibilities. Why? Because they're self-disciplined people. And that's what it's really about. It's not about disciplining people. So again, go ahead. So you say there, so, and I'd written that phrase down, bureaucracy is to compensate for mediocrity and the lack of discipline. So if we're going to remove bureaucracy from our our companies and, and try and unencumber the 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 people working for us, how would you set about doing that? I'd, I'd just love you to illustrate it if you could. Well, so I'll give a couple of, uh, 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 of pieces. First, again, it goes back to first two. Again, you can't, you can't turn undisciplined people into disciplined people, so you find self-disciplined people and then give them freedom, right? That, that, that sort of direction of the arrow is essential. So you would interview for that. You would interview, you would select well, for that. And, and also, yes, it's who stays in your culture is that, right? right? But the other is, the thing, there's a wonderful, back when Nordstrom was being built, uh, and uh, the, it was going through the first generation and second generation, and they wanted to create a, a culture of customer service. And they would bring people who have an orientation to that. Uh, but they had this, this wonderful card. We wrote about it back in Built to Last, uh, with Jerry Parson, I wrote about it, which was uh, rule number one, uh, use your best judgment in every situation. Rule number two, see rule number one, or there will be no additional rules. I mean, essentially, the idea being that if you if you have those people, you need a lot fewer rules because they will use good judgment in each situation. And there's a basic trust to that. Uh, that's why, and then that's actually an exceptionally high level of discipline. Think about it. Think about some a mentor you've had in your life that what they did was they trusted you. I had a mentor named Bill Azir at Stanford when I first started teaching. And I said, Bill, you want to tell me how to do this? I was 30. I was just figuring it out. And he looked at me and he said, Jim, I trust you. I trust that you do whatever it takes to deliver a great result for the students who are going to take the class. Let me know if I can help. Okay. Now, you want to talk about a level of pressure that this person who I admired and I loved would say to me simply, 
I trust you. Well, you want to talk about bringing out of me a sense of productive neurosis to not want to let him down. See, that's, that's a very different thing than Bill sitting down with me and saying, okay, Jim, there are 10 rules you have to follow, and I'm going to sit over you and tell you I would have done that, but it would have had nothing resemble – it would not have created the wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning, sense of commitment, I can't let Bill down. I can't let the students down. It's personal, and it's, it's deeply connected to a sense of, wow, I really, really can't afford to fail, not for me, but for our relationship. So, um, Flywheel. Want to chat about Flywheel? Let's do it. Okay. So, so let's think about this for a minute. Um, so, the first thing is never underestimate the power of momentum to create energy, just as an opening thought. And when we were doing the research in, in Good to Great, um, it's a, uh, let me even just step back one step further. Let's look at where we are in the framework. I said disciplined people, disciplined thought, disciplined action, building its last. We've talked a lot about disciplined people appropriately. Then you have disciplined thought, brutal facts, and get clear on what you can do better than anyone else in the world. And you begin making decisions with that, consistent with your economics, and then you begin to build momentum. And that brings us to you know, the disciplined action. We're talking about a culture of discipline, but the disciplined action of the flywheel. So you're in stage three disciplined action. And we thought that what would happen is if you look at these good to great transitions, you see a company that's average and it breaks through to get at least 15 years of extraordinary results. It makes truly the leap from good to great. Now, if you're looking at it from the outside, you see this beautiful inflection point, right? The stock price is going sideways and then it takes off and for 15 years it beats the market. And that is like looking at an egg that cracks open and all of a sudden out jumps a chicken. It's almost this instantaneous thing, as if it came out of the blue. But of course, what does it look like from the chicken's point of view, right? There's a lot going on inside that egg before the egg cracks open and out jumps the chicken. And what we realized when we were interviewing the folks who may, were there at the time of the good to great transition, we kept saying, so tell us, what was the miracle moment? What was the breakthrough? What was the aha? What was the grand vision? What was the big revolution that happened? And they would say, well, we don't understand your question. Because that's not the way it felt. That's not what we, what we were living. And I realized that the way a transformation from good to great appears looking in from the outside is different than the way it feels on the inside. And the way it feels on the inside is the flywheel effect. You start pushing a giant heavy flywheel and you gradually get one giant slow creaky turn and you don't stop. And you get two turns, and you don't stop, and you get four, and then you don't stop, and you get eight, 16, and 32, and 100, and 1,000, and a million, and then eventually 100 million and a billion turns on that flywheel. And if I were to say to you, so what was the one big push that made it go? Well, you can't answer the question because it's a cumulative effect of turning the flywheel. So that was the flywheel principle that we found. And in the years since, what I've really come to see is that my understanding of it is really deepened because it's not just the flywheel principle, which is sort of the durable idea from good to great, but it's then how do you harness that flywheel effect specifically in your situation to create the kind of momentum that produces a flywheel result? And that means specifying it for your setting. More from my discussion with Jim after this. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now back to the chat with Jim Collins. You've just published this new update, which is Turning the Flywheel, which tries to help people find, I guess, the specifics of their industry, of, of their business to try and do that. Exactly. And and um, I mean, the way it really started to first come to me was in 2001 after the dot-com bust. I was asked to go teach the good to great principles up at Amazon. And I met with the, the this senior executive team up at Amazon. And all I did is teach the ideas. I'm a teacher. I'm a researcher. Uh, I don't tell people answers. And How did they, it work out for them? Well, so far, so good. Uh, (laughs) It's a pretty big flywheel. But what was really powerful was how they took the flywheel idea. And with all great students, they take great learning, but then they take it even further. And they they made it their own. And what they did was they said, well, we want to harness the flywheel effect coming out of the dot-com bus, but let's get clear on how our flywheel turns. And if you'd like, I'll, I'll share what that is because it sort of shows a flywheel. But before we leave the flywheel, I want to come around to one thing that is, I think, really important maybe for the folks that join you on this podcast. It's the power of creating a flywheel at a unit level for your own people. Right, so let's try not to lose that thought. Would you like to hear about the Amazon one? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm especially fascinated just to hear the details of the process, to do details of how they they worked it through. Yeah, very yeah. much so. So, so think about it. So, the, the key thing about a flywheel is that it captures and it's got an underlying logic to it. It's got an underlying uh, 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 sort of set of of A drives B drives C drives around the flywheel. So picture a loop, right? It's kind of like a clock and you've got 12 o'clock and three o'clock and six o'clock and so forth. And the flywheel is this thing you're going to turn to build momentum. But if you take the Amazon case, it starts at the top with lower prices on more offerings. Okay. But now here's the key. If you do that, then you almost can't help but increase customer visits. Notice it's not, and then next we do. It's, and and then next we almost can't help but do. Big difference. And then if you increase customer visits, well, then you almost can't help but attract more of those third-party sellers. And if you attract more of those third-party sellers, well, then you almost can't help but 
expand the store and extend your distribution. And if you do that, you almost can't help but grow revenues per fixed cost. And if you do that, you almost can't help but have the range to be able to lower prices on more offerings, which then brings you back around to customer visits, third-party sellers, expand the store, extend distribution, more economies of scale, back to lowering prices. And notice the beauty of there's, there's inherent momentum when you feel it. It's not this static sense of here is our strategy. It is the underlying momentum machine. And the beauty of it is the underlying logic of it. You don't have to do any sp- special pleading for why B should follow C, C, or why B will drive C. C will follow from B. And that's the key to the flywheel. What I have learned since writing Good to Great is that when you can capture that underlying logic that is the propellant that drives it around, where it's really logically sound, and it has inherent momentum in it, then you start to create the true flywheel effect as it begins to build more momentum over time. And then people get swept up in it. People think you 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 get people aligned behind something you're trying to do by motivating them. No. Really great people, if they sense a flywheel that's working, they'll get swept into the momentum and alignment flows from that momentum and results, not from exhortations and motivations. Okay, so so that means that that to some extent, what the the their self motivation perpetuates the the process rather than rules and bureaucracy. Absolutely, and and on top of that, think about it. Think about when you were you've you've had these experiences, Bruce, in your own life, where you're in one environment and feel really energized, and maybe another where you're less energized. Well, part of those really energizing environments is they you can feel the momentum. And you can feel that it works. It's like my wife created the flywheel effect on a high, a high school cross-country team, uh, boys and girls, and they won all these state championships. But she would create this momentum. She would make the first race of the season on a difficult course, the second race of the season on a moderately difficult course, and the third race of the season on a flat and fast course. Why? Because she's the kids are going to get a faster time each of the first three weeks, which means they get swept up and wow, the program works right. and they feel better. And then that just feeds their commitment even further, which drives the flywheel around. So you see the notion of increasing results and that sense tactile, I can feel that this works, is what draws you in to help it work even better rather than somebody saying, let's go to the locker room and let me give you a motivational speech. Well, what you're motivated by is the spreadsheet of your times. Wow, look, I'm getting faster. It's so fascinating you say that because you, you mentioned in in all of your work that this has been uh, – I, I read the updated version of Good to Great as well as the first one. And you said that it had been used by schools. It had been used by hospitals. It had been – you know, these these ideas aren't just applicable to businesses, right? Well, the, one of the things that we write about in, in turning the flywheel are a range of flywheels. But if you get later in the piece, you find that a number of them are non-business, right? They are, in fact, I've always viewed that our work is about figuring out how great human systems work. And it just so happens I studied companies to get at it. But the notion of companies, if you're comparing great companies to good companies, great companies to mediocrities, companies drops out, right? So it really is the difference between great and not great. And then you can begin to go over and and look at uh, other types of organization, healthcare and arts. And we have this marvelous example of an elementary school. 
I don't know if that's the proper term in the UK, but sure, our, yeah, right, yeah. an elementary school where a, a unit leader in a school took over a school in, on a military base in rural Kansas. And what she did was she said, I've got to figure out how to get our reading rates from, I think they were down somewhere in the 30s or something like that. I got to get them up. We can't fail these kids. We can't fail these kids. That's unacceptable. If we fail them now, we failed them for their lives. But what did she do? She didn't wait for the Secretary of Education. She didn't wait for the whole state to get it figured out. She had her minibus. And she said, I need to create a momentum machine inside my building. And so she actually articulated and drove a flywheel that, in her case, starts with these really passionate teachers, which then would feed them into these collaborative improvement teams, which then would sort of develop all of these collaborative uh, plans and programs and follow the data, which would lead to the kids doing better and better, which then would lead to the reputation of the school, which then would lead to getting more of those passionate teachers in. And the whole thing, it was creating this microclimate on a single bus. And here's the thing you were talking earlier about, what makes certain environments really great? What I love about this is here's a school principal, or I guess in, in, your, in the UK it might be headmaster, I'm not sure the right terminology, but it's that unit leader. Yeah. The unit leader who says, I can't wait for the whole education system to get better. I have my kids today. I have my teachers today. I'm going to grab, I'm going to do a flywheel that's going to build momentum that people just want to get sucked into making this better and better right here in my school. I don't have time to wait for the whole system to get figured out. And what I love is this idea. She's a level five leader, but she's not the secretary of education. She's not a CEO. She just did it in her school. And that idea that you can take the ideas and say, I just have a school. I have a department. I'm going to do it right here. And I come back to that increasingly in my own passion for things because as we mentioned earlier, people don't live with the CEO. They live with their unit leader. And that's where, if, I, if you said to me, Jim, you could reach all the CEOs or you could reach the unit leaders, I'll take the unit leaders because that's, that's who touches everybody's lives. Fascinating. And so would, would you say that some of these elements can exist at team level rather than company level or is, is greatness at a company level? And tell, tell me that. Well, uh, absolutely at team level. And one of the things that uh, uh, there's – in fact, if you even look inside organizations, you're going to see a range of t qualities of teams, if you will. I like to challenge people to say to, – to take the ideas from all of our work, whether it be the flywheel or whether it be you know, all the other principles that are in good to great, and say, you have a minibus. And your responsibility is to create a pocket of greatness on that minibus. And here's what's fascinating. Ask yourself, how did these self-effacing people that became the CEOs at the, the level fives at the good to great companies who never drew attention to themselves become CEO? And the, reason, the way they did it was at every step of their journey, they didn't manage their career. They built a pocket of greatness on whatever size minibus they had. It could have been the legal department, an accounting department. Right? It might have been a manufacturing facility, but whatever they said, they said, my job right now is to make this minibus a pocket of greatness, and I will take care of my people, and I'll create the climate here. And because they did that so well, that's what Emma Kehi did. She just focused on her unit and made it spectacular each step of the way. And then if you do that, 
people are going to ask you to drive bigger buses. And if you really build that pocket of greatness and responsibility right where you are, you are more likely to die of indigestion for too much opportunity for responsibility rather than starvation for too little. Fantastic. That feels like a good note to, to end on. I would just, just pass along that it's a great privilege to uh, be able through your questions and our conversation to reach uh, the folks who join us on this podcast because I know a lot of them are out there leading minibuses. And I hope they take the ideas. I hope they build a flywheel right where they are and turn the flywheel, but also that they really pay attention to what they can do to make a spectacular place to work with what they touch. I think that's the the wonderful thing of what you've just said there that it's universal right that you yep. know you've you've almost sort of illustrated that it could be someone just running a a small team that they could take these principles, they could start with exactly the disciplines that you've described, they could make their team better, and, and they don't need to have to wait for this this day that they might get summoned to be the CEO of somewhere. They can actually make, or it might be that their local school or their 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 local kids' football team, you know, they, they can make these things happen. Exactly, and don't wait. If the folks around you haven't got it figured out, so what? Just do it yourself. Fantastic. I look forward to the next 30 years. <laughs> As do I. <laughs> Very good, Bruce. Thank so, take care on those mountains. All right. Thank you to Jim Collins. I think, you know, the critical thing I would take away is the fact that he illustrates that anyone can apply these things, anyone can learn from these things. But a uh, fascinating book. What, one of the companies we did talk about there, we talked about Nucor. Nucor had started as nuclear electricity. And they ended up becoming the most profitable steel manufacturers in the US. Just fascinating story. But one of the things that they hired for along the way, they hired farmers because they saw that the work ethic of former farmers was so diligent and so ingrained in their mentality that it produced incredibly hardworking steel workers. Really interesting. That was what I was wondering if Jim would say along the way. I hope you've enjoyed this. If you've enjoyed this, please do check out the previous episodes. There's some fantastic ones in the back catalogue. We're getting up to about 80 episodes now, so there's a whole load more, and I think it's all pretty timeless. So if you're interested in improving work, hopefully you'll you'll go back and explore the back catalogue. Thanks for joining me. I'm Bruce Daisley. See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.